morning we, we uh, continue our series in Philippians. We've titled the series Philippians. And uh, if this is your first time here, what you need to know is that our desire is to connect people to Jesus for life change. If this is your first time here, we just ask one thing of you this morning, is that is if you take time to fill out the connection card, which you can find in your bulletin, fill it out, take it out to the first time guest kiosk, we have a gift for you. Also, after the end of this service, um, there's an opportunity, if you've been around Southbridge for a little bit, but you'd like to learn more about how to plug in, maybe you've been spectating for a while at Southbridge, you may even call Southbridge your church, if you've never been involved in others' lives, you've never served on the team, um, please go to that blue tent after the service, meet with Scott, there's information there for you. This morning we do continue this series and it's been a challenge, it's been an encouragement for sure. And it's my privilege to continue in the series. And before we look at the context of our text, and we're going to saturate ourselves in God's word this morning, I want to ask you this question. What would it take for you to say to the Lord, wherever, whenever, whatever, I'm yours? What would it take to convince your heart, your spirit, your mind, your body to say to the Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. This morning we have the privilege of looking at a few examples that live that out. And so with that question in our hands, let's fill our minds, our hearts, our souls with God's word. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 19 is where our text will be, but I'm going to start in verse, chapter 1, verse 27, because every text has a context. And it's our privilege to take in God's word. And I pray that this morning, that you'd be glad that you came here this morning. So I'm going to start in verse 27 of chapter 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's speaking to, this is Paul writing from prison under imperial guard to the believers at Philippi who will be facing or facing persecution because of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggles you saw I had, I now hear, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the saints, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be that should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is by God, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life 
in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service from coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now this is just the context of our text. We see here in Philippians chapter 2 the famous passage that Pastor Scott led us through a few weeks ago so well that Jesus was willingly sent in love by God the Father to earth and sacrificed his life so that we could be reconciled to God. Now stop there for a moment. I just want to encourage you a little bit in your doctrine. A lot of times people view the Old Testament God, God the Father as wrathful and then Jesus steps and says, no God, don't punish them. But the scriptures tell us that for God the Father so loved the world that he gave his son. See, Jesus and God the Father are one in character. The Father so loved the world that he sent his son and the son agreed. This is the idea of sacrificial service. Jesus is the model of sacrificial service for us. And today we see a few more shining stars, as Paul would say. Shining stars of service as we consider characteristics, aspects, styles, or, or titles of service. Almost like looking at a Rubik's Cube from different perspectives. We're looking at service and from different angles. Where might we grow in our service for the glory of God? So what we have in chapter 2 is the testimony of Christ by Paul. And then Paul testifying of himself, of his being poured out like a drink offering. And then we have the testimony and the legacy we see here of two others. Look at verse 19 with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because he, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I can, as soon as I see how things are going with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. Timothy and Epaphroditus are two examples of, of Christians whose lives shout, wherever, whenever, whatever, Lord, I'm yours. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Two examples of those who are living out what Paul taught in verses 1 through 16, which is why we had to read it again. This morning, then, is an opportunity to learn from their example. Now, they are not the measuring device of service. Christ is our measuring one. We look to him. We compare ourselves to him. However, we can learn from the testimony of these two. So let's start with Timothy. Timothy was from a little town in Lystra in, Lystra in Galatia. Uh, his theological heritage comes from his mom, his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. They would have taught him about the scriptures. His father was, was Greek. Uh, non-believer, there's not much said of him. What's so cool is that God uses Timothy's background in time to where Timothy himself ministers the gospel to the Greeks. Isn't it cool how God can use your past to shape ministry for the future? 
So we don't know when Timothy became a Christian. But it was at least by the time that Paul met him in Acts chapter 16, which our church journeyed through the whole book of Acts for a couple years, a season ago. Let's look at the testimony of Timothy here. Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive the news about you. I have no one else like him who takes genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Paul is sending Timothy to Philippi. So this is a letter, and most probably Timothy is one carrying the letter. A letter to this church, the believers at Philippi. And the reason why he's sending Timothy is to help the church at Philippi in unity, to encourage them as they face persecution, to face persecution well, to uphold the truth, and then to return to Paul with the report. Verse 20 takes us to the first characteristic we're looking at, the first kind of aspect or title of selfless, sacrificial service. Holding in our hands the whole time here, the question, what would it take for you to say, wherever, whenever, whatever, Lord? Verse 20. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. A mark that we have here of sacrificial service is this. If you're a note taker, you can write this down and consider your life before it this week. A genuine interest in others. When Paul says that he has no one like Timothy, it reminds me of other unique people in Scripture. There's no one like them. In fact, in the Old Testament, we read of Abraham, who was so unique in his faith. We read of Job and how unique he was in his blamelessness. In fact, God brags on him and says, there's no one like him. He's blameless in all his ways. He fears God and shuns evil. Samson was so unique in his supernatural strength. Solomon was unique in his wisdom, his godly wisdom. The Scripture says there wouldn't be one like him. Jesus Christ says of John the Baptist himself that there would never be another prophet like him. And Timothy is said to be unique. What makes you unique? (laughs) You'd think that Christians would be unique in the same way as Timothy, but most times maybe us Christians are known for being weird, not for necessarily being holy. I have five children. They're all unique. I usually mention them in each of the messages. If I were to say the unique thing about them, the first uh, is an entertainer. The second is a scientist. The third is a zookeeper. (laughs) The fourth is a comedian. The fifth is... Just raw power. Raw power. He's, oh man. See, Christians are supposed to be unique. Called out ones, set apart ones, the scriptures say. Hopefully we're unique for the right reasons. And let me say, this is a tough teaching here, but if what is not unique about us has nothing to do with Christ, my guess then is that we're missing the privilege of wholeheartedly imitating Christ sacrificial service. If all of us filed up here and each one of us had to come up here and those that know that person wanted to say it, what makes them unique? If it had nothing to do with Christ, then we're missing an opportunity at best. And at worst, we may be in sin. When Paul looks at all his friendships and the best person for him to send to this church that needs encouragement, of all the ones, he says there's no one like Timothy. And what made Timothy unique? The scripture tell us. The scripture says because of his genuine interest for the welfare of others, namely the church, and specifically in this text, for the church at Philippi. It reminds me of verse 4, which we already read together. Verse 4 of chapter 2. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then the rest of the teaching goes as Christ demonstrated that. Timothy seems a bit like Jesus. 
To be genuinely interested in the welfare of others is, is an expression of love, to yield to another's best interest. It's a choice. It's a conscious choice to do this. It's being like Christ. It's a sympathy. Paul's here, words here uh, could read, who will genuinely be anxious for your welfare. Now, a lot of us battle anxiety. I battle anxiety, but it's usually about my welfare because I am uncertain about what will happen. Timothy is unique that he has an, a, an anxiousness about the welfare of the people of the church. The idea is to be burdened for their welfare, to be genuinely feel deeply their needs. Wow. Having a genuine interest in others is unique. But it shouldn't be unique for believers, isn't that right? However, Paul says in the next verse, which we already read, that everyone looks up for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Who's he talking about, I wonder? See, that first part is clear, right? We all struggle with being focused on ourselves, even this morning focused on ourselves, I'm sure, in some regard. But what are Christ's interests? That's so great about what we've read so far is that we got to see Christ's interest in chapter 2. What are Christ's interests? Well, his interest, as we see throughout the scriptures, is glorifying his Father through his sacrificial love and pursuit of people. Those in relationship with him, that's the church, and those who still need yet to turn to him, to turn their hearts toward him. Paul is saying that, Timothy, I've not, no one else, he's like Jesus and like this. I bet Timothy would be bothered that we're talking about him because he'd want us to talk about Jesus. See, the person that says to the Lord, wherever, whenever, whatever, Lord, I'm yours, is going to be used by God in ways that express a genuine interest in others. Christ's interest. This is what it means to be, a, this is what being a follower of Jesus is all about. The, the mission is people. If you, don't, if you aren't interested in the spiritual welfare of other people, you aren't going to be able to say, truly say to the Lord, Lord, I'm yours. I will follow. You know, God, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just, I don't really like people so much, so keep me away from the people. <laughs> That's anti-Jesus. You know, I do church best by myself. That's anti-church. That's not church. People are messy, right? It's hard. Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as the people that you want me to minister to are easy. And that's not saying whatever, whenever, wherever. That's conditional love. I'm so glad Jesus didn't do that toward us, right? Father, I will save whoever you want me to save just as long as they are easy to be around. Timothy is unique. And we can learn from that example because it's truly the example of Christ. To have a genuine interest in the welfare, especially the spiritual welfare of the people around you. How much do you have to hate someone to not introduce them to Christ? The lover of your soul, the savior of your life. I have decided to follow Jesus as long as it suits my best interest. Verse 22 and 23 continues on in teaching about Timothy. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, how the court case goes, because he's in um, jail. He's in house arrest because they're waiting trial to see if this Jesus stuff is connected to Judaism or if it's his own thing. And is it really much to punish here? And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. We see here three more descriptions. If you're a note taker, we see that Timothy was interested, the general, he has a genuine interest in others, but then he's also approved, he's a son, he's a servant. We see that Paul describes Timothy as approved. This word for approved carried with it the idea of being um, tested. 
as of metals, like the refining fire testing metals. Three times the church now has already, this church in Philippi has already met Timothy. We read this in the book of Acts chapter 16, chapter 19, chapter 20. Timothy's integrity then was well established with these people. A definition for integrity for those that like to take notes would be this, doing what is right no matter what the cost. Job would be an Old Testament example of such. Timothy is, is known. He's been tested. He's, he's proved. It reminds me of Paul's instructions to Timothy that we read in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. He writes, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. That verse is the theme verse for Awana, that children's ministry program. Maybe you're familiar with it. That's where I came to know Christ through that ministry. Approved workmen are not ashamed. So we see a description of a servant, the, the faithful servant, the one that we, we should strive to be like, I think, is one that's approved. Now, we're accepted by God because he loves. We receive his gift. But this idea of being approved is this idea of tested. Have, are you test, standing up to the tests of life? That one could call on you then to minister because of your interest in them. Timothy's got a genuine interest in the welfare of others. He's approved. Then Paul says this really unique thing. He says, he's a son. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. He's, he's a son. Paul, when Paul speaks of Timothy as a son of the Lord, it's not a biological son. We know Timothy's heritage. But this phrase of son of the Lord means like a son in the faith. It's really a description of discipleship. And we know at the end of each of the Gospels that Jesus commissioned his disciples to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. And somehow, in time, someone shared the Gospel with Timothy and calling upon what he knew of God from the Scriptures, he saw the Holy Spirit put that together for him in his heart. He yielded his life to Christ. And now Timothy is on this mission of making disciples that make disciples that make disciples. In fact, at some point, he starts pastoring the church at Ephesus. And in time, he gets linked up with this discipler, this mentor, Paul. And Paul is so close when he calls him a son in the faith. A question to ask, if we're going to be on the Great Commission, making disciples, because of the great commandment of loving God and loving others, who are you discipling? Who's discipling you? We never arrive, right? (laughs) No one here has arrived. No one knows everything about everything. No one here is perfect. Who's discipling you? Who are you discipling? We've done hand, hand raised style before at Southbridge where raise your hand if you've never been, never been discipled before. Then we had hands raised. Can't have it. We've had hand raised. Who's, who's not discipling someone right now? Hand raised. Dads, disciple your children. Start there. I don't know where to start. Start with your children. Well, they're adults now. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, that was used as a barrier. Sorry. Start with the people in your group. If you're not in a group, get in a group so you can have peer discipleship. So Timothy, he's this unique servant because he has a genuine interest in the welfare of others. He's known as this approved one. He's been tested. He's a son and he's a servant. He has served with me in the work of the gospel. He's a servant. Timothy served with Paul in the furtherance of the gospel. It's just so interesting. If you look at the life of Timothy, he, this guy's traveling everywhere. How could he, what would, what would make, compel him to say yes to going on these trips? I wonder if his mom said, hey, you can go there, but not too far. God forbid we be the kind of parents that disciple our children that way. Follow Jesus forever as long as it doesn't take you out of the state. He's the servant. He'll go wherever. Lord, I'll do whatever I want to do. 
So over here, he's over here at Ephesus, and the Lord, you know, so the Spirit convicts him, saying, it's time to go over here. Yeah, okay, I'll do that. Giving him the wisdom to know what to say yes and no to. It's incredible. He's the kind of person that says, Lord, here am I, send me. He just took the next step. And the truth is that we grow in the willingness to sacrificial service as we yield to the Lord and seek to serve others. So here's an idea. Here's, a, here's um, something that you could discipline yourself with. When you wake up in the morning, if the Lord should decide that you awake, because he's determined the number of your days, you could begin the morning by saying, Lord, use me today to love like you love. Give me a love that can only come from you. Use me to serve. Use me to connect other people to Jesus today. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I believe that God will open places of service for you as he sees you're ready. I believe it. Because that's what he's into. That's why you still exist. You think, well, I don't think God has any more work for me to do. If that was true, you'd be dead. Because he's prepared the, the works for you to do. There's great comfort in that. When a believer goes home, you can have a confidence that he accomplished every great task that God wanted him to do. If God's sovereign. Approved, a son, a servant. And I just challenge you to, you think about these things, you think about service, you don't know where to start, I would just start with what he's already revealed to you already. That's why we have to get into his word to know what he desires and expects of us to serve. So that's Timothy. Well, you might say to yourself, okay, Jason, in Philippians chapter 2, we have the example of Christ, I'm not him, then Paul, he's awesome, and Timothy, there's two books named after him. I could, like, how am I supposed to stack up? I wonder if Paul anticipated that, so now we have this example of Epaphroditus. Have you ever heard of him? Someone that gives us hope, a, a willing servant. So look at the next section here, verse 25. As we continue to consider, what does it take to serve? What does it take to say to the Lord, I'll do whatever I want to do? I mean, what convinced Paul to do that? Do you remember what convinced him? He has an encounter with Jesus that radically changes his life. And every time he's pressed, he pulls back to that story and says, Jesus changed my life. What must have convinced Timothy, who never saw Jesus with his own eyes, most likely? It has to be life change. I'm guessing it's the same for Epaphroditus. Look at verse 25. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you, and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. Epaphroditus is an example of someone who's living out, like Timothy was, verses 1 through 16. He's a sacrificial servant. He's, he's living out the notion of wherever, whenever, whatever, Lord, I'm yours. Did you know he's not mentioned in other texts? There's an Epaphras in other texts, most likely not the same person. We don't know much about him. We don't know when he became a Christian. Maybe it's, it happened right when Paul planted the church there at Philippi, then he said yes immediately, maybe. His name means um, loved one of Aphrodite. His parents must have been pagan, some people um, believe. Later on, that name, name just comes to mean lovely. Epaphrodite, um, the Roman god uh, Venus. So you have this guy that grows up in that culture, and somehow Jesus changes his life, and now he's willing to go wherever, do whatever. <laughs> Isn't that cool? We know that the Philippians collected an offering to send to Paul to love him. 
And it seems Epaphroditus was the one who delivered it. And after delivering the gift, then Epaphroditus stays in Rome, assisting Paul. Whatever Paul needs while under house arrest among the palace guard, he's going to do. What would that have been like at the meeting at Philippi? The offering's been taken. Someone sang a nice song during the offering, of course. And now it's time to be sent. Who's going to take the gift? Who's going to maybe be in the danger of robbers and thieves? to take this gift from Philippi to Rome. I'd be glad to do it. Well, you don't... I mean, think about it first, everyone. Just take some time. Yeah, I'm glad, I'd be glad to do it. What's wrong with him? This is the testimony of a man that simply brought an offering to another, and yet Paul uses great language to describe him in the next verse. Look at the next verse, verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to you, Paphroditus, My brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Whoa. There's a lot here. So let's look at aspects of service. And if you're a writer, you can write down some of these ideas, and I just want you to consider them before the Lord this week and ask God, Lord, where do you want to see me grow in my sacrificial service? The first description that Epaphroditus is given is one of a brother. Paul says that he's his brother. This is the Greek word adelphos, which means um, from the same womb. Now, this is not his biological brother, of course, but this is language that we use in church. Paul uses it as a term of affection. And don't you know that it's true that, um, that all believers share this bond? When you were born again, is the phrase, when your faith was placed in Christ, you are adopted into the family of God. This is why collectively we could say God is our Father, our Heavenly Father. And why we can also say that we have brothers and sisters in the faith. I grew up in Michigan. Not a lot of people up there said brother. Now in the South people say it, but I don't know if that means they're Christian or not. I just don't know if it means we're in the South. But Paul calls Epaphroditus his brother. If you're a Christian, you have brothers and sisters through faith in Christ. So a question to consider, just even from being one servant being called a brother, is this. Am I committed to my siblings in the faith? Am I committed to them? Am I committed to serve them? See, this is the idea of becoming a part of a local church. You know, membership is not in the Bible, the idea of formalized membership, which we have. You go to Next Steps to become a member at Southbridge. But it's, it's, a, it's a way of saying publicly, I'm a part of this church family. And so what we see here is that Paul and Epaphroditus have this special connection already, but the connection that all of us can have for those that are in Christ, a brother, sister. The question that I've been thinking about this week is, am I committed to my siblings in the faith? Another ex- uh, title that is given is co-worker. Your translation might say, my companion in labor. And this word is used 13 times in the New Testament, 12 by Paul, who worked with him in ministry. He is a co-worker. It's speaking of common effort or diligence. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, that we are, um, for we are God's fellow workers. The problem is that a lot of us just stay at the sibling place. We're not looking to serve anyone, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a confidence in Christ. We place our faith in him, but we're not looking really to to serve one another. So many people sadly don't, in a sense, graduate to the idea of co-worker. We're to be working, using our gifts, time, treasure to build other believers up. That's why you're given spiritual gifts to build up the church. Are you doing that? Then we use our gifts to build up the church, then to empower one another, encourage one another, reaching those that aren't yet in Christ. 
So to be a sacrificial servant is to live out verses 1 through 16 in this text, to spend effort then, to spend effort on what we should be involved in. We are in a world, especially in the States here, where we have so many opportunities to do things that aren't that. Kind of just rock to sleep with all the opportunities that are out there. All the hobbies and all the interests. Maybe like never before, I don't know. And yet Paul calls Epaphroditus a co-worker. And I ask myself this week, I think to myself, am I serving anyone with anyone? Are you a co-worker? A co-laborer as it relates to making Christ known and exalted? How's it going? So we have Epaphroditus is known as this brother and this, this co-worker. Thirdly then, soldier. Imitating Christ by serving others in light of the gospel will meet resistance, a resistance that seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. The scripture tells us that we have an enemy. It's like this invisible enemy, a principality of this world, a darkness in this world that is against all things Jesus, and especially those that wear Christ's name. So the believer is to be a sibling, is to, is, is to be a co-laborer, a co-worker, and a soldier. We must humble, be humble servants in our service as, as we work, but also at the same time fierce warriors. It's not language that we really feel comfortable with. In fact, many believers have a pacifying, a pacifist kind of attitude. But the scriptures are clear that we're supposed to battle. In fact, chiefly battling our own sin and selfish desires and then all that that would suppress the truth, dark spiritual forces, anything that is anti-Jesus. This is why Paul uses language, I have fought the good fight. What's the fight? The life of following Jesus is a battle. Every time I preach, I wish I wasn't. But when I'm not preaching, I wish I was. I have to preach God's word. I want to encourage believers. As I'm talking to you, what happens in my mind is a battle. The battle is usually around something like, um, I can't see your faces at all because of how we do church right now. God, please give us a facility someday. Okay. <laughs> so what happens is the accuser wants to come in and play on my insecurities, which abound. I have way more than all of you combined, I think. To say something like, um, it's not connecting, try hard, make fun of yourself, do something that, is manipulative, right? That's battle. See, this kind of stuff didn't just exist here in Rome a long time ago, and now we just are all done with that stuff. It, it's still happening. There's a battle for your soul. There's a battle for your worship. You were made to worship, and so everything's trying to fight for that worship. The accuser, your flesh wants to be worshipped. We're supposed to soldier on. And what's so great is that Jesus provided for us the ultimate final victory, of course. But we fight hard to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known until our own lives end or until Christ returns. Please, ret- please return, Father. Please send your Son. So a question we have to ask ourselves in light of this title is simply, am I soldiering in the faith or am I surrendering? And this is where biblical community really helps. So this is like getting in a group really helps because we know that we're prone to surrender. We're prone to not fight the good fight. So where are the believers around you? Have you placed yourself in a community, a faith community, where believers know you, where you're honest enough to saying, I really feel like I'm losing? 
You confess your sin because you've succumbed to sin. An arrow came at you, a fiery dart came at you, and you've been beat up by it. Where is the believer around you that's going to come and say, let's do some surgery here. Let me tell you the truth, which acts as a bomb, is driving your eyes to Jesus as opposed to the circumstances. And now you get back up, dust off. Now you pick up your shield, you pick up your sword, and you're ready. So you don't fight alone. But many people say, I do church best by myself. My faith is private. No, it's personal, but it's not private. It's public. Are you soldiering? I know nothing about the military except for my friends that I have in here. I cannot speak to that. I know I'm not a man of great courage. But I could say this. If I had believers around me while facing the time of battle, I know that I'm emboldened because they are encouraging me. Keep going. Keep fighting. I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the servant of the Lord during World War II who suffered for Christ. And he was around other believers even up to the point of, I believe, his hanging. If I was facing that, I would want my brothers and sisters to say, it's okay, you've got Jesus, keep going. You've, it's a second, you've got Jesus. The family in India, of which we sang their song, I have decided to follow Jesus. And one of the family members were shouting under restrained uh, throats and faces, don't do it, you've got Jesus. That means this, that's what it's like to soldier, to push forward, to fight the good fight. There's another description here of Epaphroditus, and the fourth one is messenger. This is the Greek word apostolos, which means messenger or sent one. And Epaphroditus was a messenger from Philippi. Now we see that that word was um, ascribed to the twelve, the twelve disciples, and also Paul and James. So they were, those were apostles of Christ. There weren't other ones after that, but this is an apostle of the church at Philippi. He was sent as their delegate. It just reminds me of the word ambassadors, which Paul uses in the book of Corinthians, that here we are Christ's ambassadors. And I was wondering this week, what would it be like to be a church that sends? Now, we've sent some missionaries. God's raised up missionaries from within this body to send them out. What would it be like if we became this hub that missionaries are built up, equipped up, and sent, 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 sent? Have you been thinking about it? You've been waiting to have a Sunday where God tells you, I want you to go. Today's the day if he's telling you. And we will love and embolden and encourage you to be a messenger. Is that an area for you to grow in? Maybe God has strategically planted you here in Raleigh, and I think he has, to do the work that you do wherever you do it so that you'd be the messenger there and looking for that opportunity to share the hope that you have in Christ who is himself your peace. Where do you need to grow? Do you need to grow as a sibling in the Lord? You've not been really involved and engaged with the believers. You need to grow as a coworker. You're not using your gifts. You need to soldier on. You've been surrendering when you should be standing firm. Is it time to grow in being a messenger? This was a messenger to the, another believer. What believer in your life do you know that needs to be fortified in their faith? You need to give them the message of the gospel even to the believer. The next title is a bit hidden in the NIV. If you're a note taker, you can write down the word minister. It's to take care of, the scripture says, Paul says that um, Epaphroditus took care of my need or ministered to my need. That word care of is the word minister. It's the, the word that we see in the Old Testament was the word used for priestly functions that were performed. Paul views Epaphroditus' ministry him as a uniquely spiritual act. Ministering to others' physical needs is a spiritual priestly function. You help feed those that don't have food. You help clothe those that don't have clothes. That's, a, that's actually a spiritual function. Now we want to connect that do goodness with the gospel, chiefly the words of the gospel, the name of Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again so that any who would believe in him would not perish eternally but have every lasting life with him. 
He's a minister. Epaphroditus is a minister. I don't know if, even know if he knew it. I bet he'd be embarrassed if we talked about him like this. So the question we have to ask ourselves in light of this title is, am I seeking to meet the need of others as God provides? You go throughout your day and you get that Holy Spirit conviction about doing something generous. Have you ever found a reason not to do that thing? That's warfare. And the Spirit is speaking clearly to you and saying, I want you to give of yourself this way, give the time, give this treasure or whatever. And you're right at that moment, at that crossroads to step forward. That's the idea of being invited to be a minister. And when we say no, that's disobedience. It's called um, grieving the spirit. And what happens is his voice gets tuned, tuned down. And a perpetual disobedience might be why you feel like you might say the phrase, sometimes we say like we feel far from God. Sometimes it has to do with that we've turned him down. Other times we're just in the desert place. He's there. He's with you. How is it going being a minister? Well, there's more to be said here in so little time. Look at verse 26. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not, only, not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. That phrase means wave upon wave. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. The word longing here that's used to describe Epaphroditus' affections for his home church. In the Greek, the word means to intense, intensely crave, desire greatly. Paul used this word to describe himself in relationship to this church in chapter 1, verse 8. Can you imagine caring about your church family that much? For all these, those of you that filled out a bracket for the NCAA tournament, do you care about that ter- bracket of teams you don't care about more than you care about your church family? See, sometimes when it comes to our sports teams, when they win, it's my team. And when they lose, it's that team, just like we view our church. Sometimes we view our church the same way. When things are going great, the life changes happen, or they have the programs that you like, it's my church. But when the leadership is clumsy, and they are because they're human, or something doesn't go so well, it's that church. Epaphroditus, when he thinks about his church, he has a longing for them. He loves them. He's ministering in every way, these five ways at least. But Paul says, of Epaphroditus, he longs, he loves his church family. That seems a lot like Jesus, who died for his bride, the church. The word distressed is mentioned here about his emotion and feeling toward his church. The word distressed means to be depressed, to be troubled, full of anguish or sorrow. And this word is only used two other times in the whole New Testament. Do you know when it's used? It's used to describe Jesus Christ while he's in the Garden of Gethsemane in the night he was betrayed as he's speaking to his father. Epaphroditus was, was troubled because his church had heard that he was sick. Think about that for a second. He was distressed. He wasn't distressed because he's sick. He was distressed because they heard he was sick. What's wrong with this guy? When you're sick, think about it just for a quick illustration here. I can tell you this. When I'm sick, guess who I'm thinking about? Me. To be a little more gross here, PG, if I have a stomach virus, I don't give a rip about anybody else. I think to myself as I push everything out, that's the last breath I'll ever take. I lay on the floor and pray for the kingdom. I know God gives, I believe by faith that God gives supernatural grace in moments where people require it the most. 
especially when they face persecution or martyrdom. I think it's a wonderful testimony to Paphroditus, this person that we only get to know right here that Paul would say about him. He's not worried about being sick. He's worried about you worrying about him being sick. It goes back to having a genuine interest in others. It goes back to the beginning of Philippians chapter 2. He seems a lot like Jesus. He didn't want them to grieve over his sickness. Look at verse 29. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. He didn't look into his own interest, but to theirs. And Paul, some scholars believe the reason why Paul's writing this at the end here is to help them understand that he didn't quit. So they should receive him well because he worked so well, even risking his life because of the work. Paul says to honor him because he almost died, died living a Christ-like sacrificial service. The text says that Epaphroditus was risking his life. Did you catch that? This phrase literally means, so the noun verb, noun form of that is dice, and the verb form here means to roll the dice or to gamble. And in this context, then, it means to expose oneself to danger. Epaphroditus exposed himself to danger. Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go, whenever you want me to go, as long as it's safe. Safety is important. Epaphroditus did not know what the outcome of his travels would be. How could he? He's not all-knowing. He didn't know what he'd be facing when he was meeting with Paul and meeting Paul's needs. He didn't know what trouble would come upon himself because of serving another to fortify their faith in Christ. And because of Christ, he couldn't have known. He's following Christ's example. In following Christ's example, when we say, I have decided to follow Jesus, then we should be willing to lay down our lives to meet the needs of others. Yet we selfishly clutch life and guard our own interests when the mind of Christ is to be selfless and sacrificial, isn't it, loved ones? I mean, that's what God has called us to do. So the question to ask ourselves is, when was the last time I risked something? When was the last time Christ's love compelled me to risk something so that another person would be fortified in their faith? A lot of us take risks in different ways, financial risks, and we take relational risks sometimes. And those that serve in our armed forces, our, our, our policemen that we have here, our firemen here, that's a risk. What about the kind of risk that is because of you're compelled by love from Christ Risk so that others would be fortified in Christ. Either come to know Christ or be growing in Christ. How's that going? In time, there came to be this group known as the gamblers. <laughs> Scott's actually made mention of them, maybe without saying that phrase. And their hero was Epaphroditus. I don't know what you go by. I don't have a nickname yet. Maybe the ice cream man? I don't know. And so we have this group called the Gamblers. And in AD 252, a plague broke out in Carthage and people threw out the bodies of their dead and even some of their still living loved ones. They left them, abandoned them, and left the city for the sake of their own lives. Scott's told us this story before. So what happened is that Christians, these gamblers, they risked their lives, gathered together and started burying the dead and then nursing the sick back to health and by doing so saved the city at the risk of their own lives. I'm willing to get sick so that one who is sick may be made well so that they might know and experience the love of Christ. Whoa. Whoa. 
It was their mission to risk their lives to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ in very tangible ways without hesitation. Wherever, whenever, whatever, Lord, I'll do it. I'll do whatever you want me to do. What would it take to convince you to risk like that? See, most of us don't like risk. We're risk averse. But what is the real risk? We've already studied in this book. To live is to live on mission for Christ. To live is to be, is to be Christ in this world. You've got Christ. And to die, well, that's a gain because you get to be with him in heaven. There's no risk at all in one regard. Epaphroditus risked it all to minister to Paul's needs on behalf of his church. So he then modeled verses 1 through 16. He emptied himself as we see of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. What about you? What about me? You might be like me and think to yourself, well, I don't have what it takes. You are half right. I don't either. But if you have Christ, then you have all that it takes. To do whatever he's commissioned you to do, loved ones. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Discipleship is accepting Jesus' invitation of not who wants to go to heaven simply because everyone does and everyone plans on going there. However, we know that that road is very narrow, so not everyone who thinks they're going there is. The invitation is, if anyone wants to follow me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. A lot of people said they were interested in that, but they had things that were hindering them from such. They had an amplified view of those things and a small view of Jesus. Telling the Lord wherever, whenever, whatever is actually the basics of discipleship. It's, it's not radical, it's elementary. You may ask, well, I don't, know where, I don't know where to start. Start today with what he's already revealed to you. Get into his word. His spirit will guide and prompt you. If you're not in Christ, today is the day to say, Jesus, I recognize that you died and rose again. You took the punishment for my sin. I'm placing my faith and my trust in you. I will follow you. And then you make that known to as many people as possible. As many people as possible. It's a service that's prompted by the love of Jesus. So the last question is the first question. What would it take for you to tell the Lord wherever, whenever, whatever, and like Timothy and Epaphroditus, live a life that shouts, Jesus, I'm yours. It reminds me of the song, I don't think I need any other arguments. I don't need any other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Died for me. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we recognize that you are the Lord. We submit our church, our church family to you, brothers and sisters in the faith. God, for anyone that's here, Lord, that has yet to yield their lives to you, Lord, pray, I pray today would be the day. Thank you, Jesus, for your selfless sacrifice motivated by the love of God for our sakes. Lord, help us to demonstrate that same kind of love so that an unbelieving world know, Father, that you'd sent your Son and that many may turn to you. Lord, help us to be the mindful brother and sister. Help us to be quick to be the co-laborer, to, to be the soldier, to not surrender anymore to the warfare that we are in. Lord, to be quick to be a messenger and a servant. All these things to have a genuine interest in others. Lord, we just submit ourselves to you. We pray these things expectantly and full of hope because of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.